Welcome to the Voices of War, a podcast with a simple vision, to bring to life the true costs of war through the voices of those who've lived it. I'm your host, Maz, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Okay, so not even two weeks ago, I stated that I won't be releasing any new episodes until the 21st of February. Well, I've changed my mind, and I want to explain why, as well as give some context to this particular episode. Today, I'm releasing my conversation with the investigative journalist Mark Willisey, recorded on the 20th of December. As many of my listeners will know, Mark is the journalist behind the explosive ABC report, Killing Field, that showed extremely controversial images of Australian SAS soldiers committing acts that may ultimately account to war crimes. He's also the author of the recently published book, Rogue Forces, an explosive insider's account of Australian SAS war crimes in Afghanistan. Unsurprisingly, both have caused a lot of controversy, both in the Australian Defence Force, as well as the broader Australian public. Mark and I had originally planned to record early in 2022, but there is a high chance that Mark will be travelling very soon, so we decided to record now. Hence, given the importance and contemporary nature of this topic, as well as the likelihood that many will be discussing it with friends and family over the upcoming holidays, I have decided to release it today. Okay, so just before we get to the interview, I want to give its genesis some context and state my position clearly before we dive in. I reached out to Mark some time ago in the hope of hosting him on the podcast to discuss both the origins of the ABC report and his recent book, as well as their impacts. As a serving member of the Australian Defence Force, I have myself witnessed the effect of Mark's journalism. However, having watched the report and having read the book, I quickly became convinced that the debate about their contents has become skewed. In my view, the debate, much like the rest of our public discourse on most topics nowadays, slid off into the extremes. On one hand, we had a segment of the public calling for the immediate disbandment of the SAS and damnation of the ADF as a whole. Not only was the competence of our forces called into question, but also the moral compass of the entire institution. On the other hand, we then had a loud minority dismissing Mark's ABC report and book as mere fiction, glorifying our soldiers as the harbingers of peace and stability to our nation, who could never do any wrong. What's fascinating to me is that most on both sides of this debate have not read his book and watched the ABC report through the lens of their own bias. In other words, Both extremes of this debate had lost sight of the forest for the trees of their own preconceived ideas. Unfortunately, given how broken our media and social media business model is, it is these skewed perspectives that dominate our social discourse. My conversation with Mark seeks to counter that ever so slightly. By giving Mark the time and space to present the intent behind his reporting, I hope to give fuel to a more reasoned debate about what happened in Afghanistan. I hope to sharpen our focus on what's really important, rather than fan the single-minded but very emotional and passionate flames of unreason that dominate our current discourse. Now, having spoken to Mark at length, I'm convinced that his true intent has been hijacked by those on the extremes of both positions, but who have ultimately not even read his book. Mark has served our nation for 25 years, much like the soldiers depicted in his stories, and both deserve to be heard and understood properly. Lastly, before we start, I'd like to once more state my position on the alleged war crimes. My fear has always been, and remains, 
that our focus and emphasis are on the wrong aspects of these cases. We are so set upon passionately debating the rights and wrongs of the actions taken by these soldiers of whom we have alleged evidence of committing war crimes. We need to let the courts do that. What I think we should be asking is, how did we get to this point? Let's take the video of the alleged execution of an Afghan national, which is the main focus in the Four Corners report. I have no doubt that anyone in the Australian society, including in the Australian Defence Force and our Special Forces community, who thinks about such things deeply, will come to the conclusion that what we see in that video is morally questionable, to say the least. However, I think our attention on the specific soldier is misplaced. What I think we need to do is explore how an Australian soldier came to think that to pull the trigger was the right thing to do. What are the circumstances that have led him to act in a way that this to him seemed justifiable? What is the context and circumstances that have led him to believe that such an action was the one to take? What has happened that an act like this was seen as acceptable? How did an act like this seemingly become part of the solution to the problems our soldiers faced. Therefore, the focus ought not to be on blame and punishment of the soldier, which we must leave to a proper and fair investigation in the court of law, but rather on understanding what has led him to become so desensitised to violence and death that killing the man seemed like an appropriate course of action. We need to ask what impacts the loss of purpose or vision has had on him. What impact has operational fatigue had? What impact has the catch-and-release policy had on our troops? What impact has the pressure to perform had? What impact has cultural shock of a place infused with values so foreign to our own had on our troops? What impact has our organisational mindset had? What impact has our leadership at the tactical, but also the operational and strategic levels had? What impact have fear and uncertainty had? What impact has the loss of a close mate had? Are we collectively asking these questions? If so, I don't think we're doing it loudly enough. To merely seek to demonise this soldier as one of the few bad apples is to miss a critical piece of this puzzle. Our soldiers are incredibly well trained, but they are also human. They are imperfect like the rest of us, and to expect that they will remain immune to the warping and dehumanising impacts war has on every one of those who have experienced its horrors, be they survivors or participants, is to deny them the very humanity we accuse them of having denied their victims. As I state in a recently published article that I'll link to this episode, we shun these soldiers from our polite society so that we may go on dancing and singing into the night, knowing we've upheld the moral standards of civilization. This is short-sighted, to say the least. What I think we should be doing is paying attention to upstream causes that make such acts not only likely, but ultimately inevitable. I am yet to be convinced that a war has ever been fought that did not at some time contain what we nowadays call war crimes. Every war has war crimes. I take this to be a self-evident truth and the starting point of how I approach this debate. Therefore, if we are going to hold our soldiers accountable, as we undoubtedly should, we must also hold those who send us to war accountable. War is hell, as anyone who's really experienced it will tell you. But we live in a society where those who send us to war and plan our wars do so with complete impunity. They, unlike our soldiers, are not held accountable, even though they are the ones who ultimately set the wheels in motion of wars that we know will ultimately end up with acts 
that deviate from our moral compass. As you will hear in my conversation with Mark, this is ultimately his view as well. Therefore, we ought to slow down, think, and focus our efforts and energy on improving where the true problem lies, our collective, apathetic, and indifferent orientation towards war. Going to war should truly be our last resort, as our beloved just war doctrine will dictate. But as we've seen time and time again in our recent past, this has not been the case. I say again, to merely hang our soldiers out to dry is to deny them the very humanity we accuse them of having denied their victims. These are our soldiers, and they are a product of the environment we, as a nation, have helped create. They are our soldiers. They are us. Okay, with all that said, I hope this episode fuels further reasoned debate, and I wish you all a safe festive season and a happy new year. My guest today is Mark Willisey. Mark has been a journalist for more than 25 years and has reported for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, Australia's national broadcaster, from more than 30 countries. Mark is a seven-time Walkley Award winner, and in 2020, he was awarded Australia's highest honour in journalism, the Gold Walkley, for exposing alleged Australian SAS war crimes in Afghanistan. His winning Four Corners report, Killing Field, made headlines around the world and sparked a federal police war crimes investigation. Mark's investigations provided evidence for 12 cases named in the Brereton Report, the Independent Australian Defence Force Inquiry into war crimes in Afghanistan between 2005 and 2016. Earlier in his career, as the ABC's Middle East correspondent for four years, Mark also reported on the ground from the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the 2003 war in Iraq. He was also the Japan correspondent in 2011, when the country was hit by its most powerful earthquake in more than a 1,000 years. Mark has twice been named Queensland Journalist of the Year, and in 2019, he won a Logie Award for his Four Corners World Exclusive on the Thai Cave Rescue. Mark has authored several books, including The View from the Valley of Hell, a book about his time in the Middle East in the early 2000s, Fukushima, which is an account of the 2011 earthquake and the twin catastrophes of the subsequent tsunami and nuclear meltdown. And more recently, he published the book Rogue Forces, an explosive insider's account of Australian SAS war crimes in Afghanistan. He joins me today to discuss this last book, how it came about and its impacts. Mark, thank you for joining me on the uh, Voices of War. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So before we get into the depths of your uh, book and all its implications, maybe we can take a few moments to just get some of your own background. Um, how did you end up in investigative journalism? Uh, you know, what, what motivated this career path? Well, you know, uh, 25 years ago now? Well, I started out actually, you know, um, I grew up in the Western Darling Downs in Queensland. Um, my dad was a diesel mechanic. Mum worked in a hardware store. Uh, I think they wanted, you know, me to do something that they saw as better in my life than what they had. And so, you know, I was encouraged to go to university. You know, I was lucky enough to get into an engineering degree. I, I, I sort of mucked about for three years on that, and I, I, I don't think I was doing very well. I was sort of headed towards some sort of failure, and I thought, oh, I'd better do something I'm really interested in because I'm not interested in this. And journalism seemed like the way to go. It's, it's one of those jobs where, you know, you can meet interesting people, you know, notorious people. You can go to crazy places. 
Um, and so I, I got into journalism and, and luckily, you know, I got picked up by the ABC, you know, just after I finished my degree. And, you know, the great thing about the ABC, it's uh, the national broadcaster. It's an amazing place to work. It's got bureaus all over the country, all over the world. And, you know, I ended up working in Toowoomba and Gladstone and Townsville, Adelaide, Melbourne, Parliament House in Canberra. Um, but I always wanted to be a foreign correspondent. And so, you know, I was lucky enough to score a job in the Middle East uh, as the Middle East correspondent based out of Jerusalem in 2002. And so that sort of kicked off my love affair with sort of, um, you know, I suppose war reporting and, and mm. foreign correspondence. Why foreign correspondent? And, and in particular, why war? Was there, is there, have you got any kind of family background in, in, in kind of military service or, or, or what's the interest that drew you towards it? Well, yeah, look, I don't. You know, my, both my grandfathers were in uh, World War Two. My my mm-hmm. paternal grandfather was up in New Guinea. Mm. Um, but no, I just I just found it interesting that you know I'd never seen anything like that. And I and I landed mm. in Jerusalem at a time where there was you know suicide bombings in cafes mm. on buses. Mm. The Israelis were hitting back, and there was sort of airstrikes in Gaza. There was the, in, in the invasion of the West Bank. And, and I just found it intoxicating t- to begin with anyway. You know, it's um, it was war sort of in the suburbs. It was war mm. in, you know, out in the regions. And um, we knew too as well that um, something was building in Iraq. I knew when we arrived in, uh, my wife and I, in, into Jerusalem, you know, the ABC said to me, look, it looks like, you know, the Americans are going to do something with Iraq. So we knew that that was going to happen as well. And, mm. and I ended up going into Iraq several times when Saddam Hussein was in power and and then when you know it all happened it, um well that was the big war and um yeah it was great but you know I did 4 years of it and uh I have mm. to tell you you know by the end of the 4 years I I probably had my fill yeah. of conflict Jeez, and and you took your you, you went with the family I mean that's a, that that in itself is that is that fairly normal that uh journalists will take their families to these types of I mean you know suicide bombings and so on is that yeah. fairly routine yeah well when i arrived we we didn't have any kids um in mm-hmm. jerusalem by the time right. we left we had two daughters um we had a third in japan just before the tsunami um yeah look I, you know i'm very lucky that my wife's a pretty strong person she's pretty pretty tough and and she wasn't phased you know she could mm. hear that you could hear the bombs go off you know when a you know, a suicide bomber and hop on a bus, and you know, a lot of your listeners know what that what that feels like, not just sounds like. And mm. um, you know, it was pretty confronting. And, and the Israelis, when as the media, we'd roll up to these suicide bombings, and they were very open about letting us film whatever we wanted because they wanted to show the world, you know, what they thought was Palestinian oh. terrorism. Mm. And so it was quite confronting. But um, yeah, look, you know. Uh, it, it taught me that uh, life can be very normal one minute and it can be over the next. Mm. I mean, the whole suicide bombing piece, I think, is a, is a really something that's so distant to most of us growing up in the comforts of our home because it seems so, well, you know, counter-evolutionary, right? I mean, you're doing the very thing that, uh, the very opposite thing that evolution is designed to do that's, you know, procreate and, 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 and fight to live, but you're... Uh, uh, you know, you're effectively committing yourself to die. Oftentimes, uh, oftentimes before uh, having had children as well for a lot of these young, well, men mainly, but also women. Uh, did you have much experience with, or have you have you explored that in your in your 
research and your journalism as well as in the, the what drives people to to do these types of acts? Yeah, I, I did actually. I spent a lot of time, um, particularly in the West Bank. You know, so the groups doing the suicide bombings were Hamas, um, Islamic mm. Jihad, uh, the Al Aqsa Martyrs Brigade, and I. I made it clear early on I wanted to meet these commanders who were sending mm. these mainly young men, there were young women as well, to die. And, and you know, I, I certainly got to meet quite a few of those guys. A lot of them didn't last too long. The Israelis were pretty good at mm. tracking them down too and killing them. Um, mm. And it was a fascinating insight. And, and from their perspective, um, the only weapon they had to, that could match the Israelis who had air superiority, missile superiority, weapon superiority generally, was mm. to use the one thing they had, which was their own bodies. And it was, a. Mm. on the one hand, I could understand it. On the other hand, I found it grotesque. Um, and it was one thing that, um, you know, I went when I went to meet these guys, I really wanted to get to the bottom of it. Um, and that's how they explained it. And whether we agreed with it or not, it was certainly a tactic that terrified. That's what, obviously, it's terrorism. The Israeli mm. population, and then of course the Israelis would hit back, and you know that involved. I remember going to Gaza one day because the Israelis had taken out a top Hamas uh, military commander by the name of Salah Shahade, and to do mm. that, they just destroyed a whole apartment block in Gaza, and they killed children, um, civilians, but they got their man, and and so I suppose, you know, um, the terrorism was being caused on both sides in mm. in some form. Mm. I mean, that's the right the age-old adage: you know, one man's terrorist, another man's freedom fighter. I mean, it, it applies uh, in so many places, and I guess it's about the perspective, right? Where where the observer is looking from uh, is really what will shape how they um, um, how they will behave. What what I mean, it's a, it's a real. I don't mean to dwell on this point, but I think it's a really interesting one because it, it really talks about uh, a lot about human nature, and I think that's what. You know, ultimately, your book talks about, and a lot of your journalism talks about. What What did you learn from those four years in 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 the Middle East and in Palestine, in uh, Israel, and of course in Iraq about human nature? Well, I suppose um, I I learned that violence um, is something that can come easily to humans, and it's something that we often revert to too quickly. Mm. Um, you know, obviously covering the war in Iraq, you know, I was in there before um, the Americans started bombing and moving in, and it was clear to me that, you know, the Iraqis were barely capable of running a state, let alone a weapons of mass destruction mm. program. So th what it also taught me is that, you know, um, the, the stereotypical bad guy, in this case Saddam Hussein, isn't always the mm. one who starts the fight. In this case, that was George W. Bush and his team, and that war was a sort of pointless war. Um, and so I learned that um, we live here in Australia in a beautiful little corner of the earth mm. where we're pretty well untouched with a lot of this drama. And, you know, coming home after four years, I, I felt uh, great relief to come home. And, you know, we're blessed with peace. We're blessed with natural mm. beauty, mm. beaches. Um, you know, it's a wonderful place for kids to grow up and. You know, I saw lots of kids killed you know, in the Middle East, um, Iraqi, Israeli, Palestinian, um, mm. Lebanese, um, and it was uh, something that I was determined that I wanted my daughters to live somewhere remotely peaceful and thankfully by uh, by virtue of our birth, we are mm. lucky to be Australian. I mean, I can't, I, I can't echo that sentiment 
uh, more strongly. I mean, as, as a child of the Bosnian War and a, uh, somebody who's uh, been adopted to this country and calls Australia home now and cherishes that that passport, which is just, you know, you know, people in Australia don't really understand oftentimes how lucky we really are and how all-consuming war is uh, to those who have to live mm. with it every single day. So I, I, I definitely echo that. I particularly like that. Uh, you, you open up that response with violence comes easily. I really like that because that's another thing that, that that's ultimately what this podcast is all about. Uh, it is about, you know, bringing to life the true costs of war through the voices of those who have lived it because I believe we have a tendency to, particularly in our cocooned Western democracies, uh, to view war as something distant, something that happens over there. It happens to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, we send we send our soldiers there, but you know we we as a society don't necessarily really feel it. Uh, we are we see it through the news media. That is our and oftentimes becomes entertainment uh, and and partisan politics. That's uh, that's how I um, how I see it. So I, I I really do agree with that comment. Uh, and I think that's the you know probably a good good segue because I think that time would have opened your eyes to what war is really like. Um, mm. And 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 I guess the raw inhumanity of war, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, it was um, it was brutal, and you know the forms of war that I saw in the Middle East were, you know, quite vast. You know, mm. the war zone one morning could be a, a child's uh, school bus um, that gets ripped apart. It could be their home in Gaza that gets hit by a missile mm. or in Iraq, it could be just, you know, out in the streets, um, you know, uh, you know, tr- more traditional style combat, if you like, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and I actually saw the Australians in Iraq. I was actually out in the Western desert, um, you know, um, basically coming back in, we'd had to pull out and we were going back in just as the Americans going in. And I, I actually ran into the Australian SAS out in the Western desert. They were, doing what I suppose was a blocking operation for um, remnants of Saddam Hussein's regime who were trying to escape to Syria and uh, mm. ran into the SAS out there. And uh, I have to say, you know, they were doing a very impressive job. And, uh, and you know, reading later, you know, they were the first guys pretty well into Iraq, um, mm. you know, doing that traditional covert role. And um, it was very interesting. They didn't. They weren't too keen for us to stop and chat with them, though. I can tell you that. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I can probably understand that as well. Um, so, I guess that was that the first time you gained exposure to the SAS, or had you done any sort of work with the military before, particularly SAS? I had. That was my first exposure to them out in the field, and mm. you know they were they were sort of um, they had cars pulled up when I pulled through there, and you know we tried to stop and talk to them, but obviously they weren't too keen on that. I, I'd had um, exposure to uh, SAS personnel or, or, or guys who'd left the SAS, SAS mm. um, you know, um, who'd helped us with security in Iraq. Um, and particularly, we'd never stayed in the green zone when we were in Iraq. And, and the most dangerous time I've found wasn't during the war. It was the, the, the couple of years after the war mm. when the insurgency kicked off. And, you know, there were up to 100 bodies a day being sort of, you know, mm. found on the streets of Baghdad every morning. It was crazy. The Shia and Sunni death squads were roaming everywhere. Mm. We um, we shared with the Japanese broadcast to NHK and we set up a house near the Tigris River and we had about a dozen Iraqi security guards, but the main coordinator of those security guards was a former Australian SAS bloke. Mm. Mm-hmm. I'll call him Dave. And, and Dave was fantastic, professional. Um, and so, you know, 
I'd, I'd seen them, you know, briefly operating out in the western desert of Iraq, and and obviously, you know, working with Dave, and there was a second SAS guy who came in to replace him. Just thoroughly professional, yeah, very understated. Um, really had to tease stories out of him. You know, these aren't guys mm. who tend to brag. Mm, and mm. Um, you know, I, I, I just talking to these guys, I, I thought. Uh, you know, uh, the SAS is something, you know, Australia and our military should be very proud of. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And, and and we'll get to that uh, very soon. There's just one one other thing that about this violence comes easily that I really kind of want to unpack your, your perspective. Again, based on what you've experienced of, of, you know, that part of the world or wars in general, what what is it that makes war violence come easily in war and, 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 and becomes acceptable? And I can speak to my own... Just to, for some context, speaking my own experience, how easily one gets desensitized. As a as a ten year old in Sarajevo under siege, you know, the first time I heard of someone die, I was devastated. I cried. You know, it was horrible. But within you know weeks, uh, you hear of somebody dying every day. You know, it just becomes second nature, right? So you become desensitized to uh, what war does. And I wonder if that's something similar. Did this that kind of desensitization also comes with the violence? Yeah, I think I think war inserts itself into the fabric of some societies. Mm. And you know, the Middle East is the crucible of much of our civilization, but it's also um a place where the worst of human nature has, you know, manifested mm. itself for, mm. for generations, hundreds, if not thousands of years. You know, I, I I didn't know anyone in Israel or Palestine who didn't know someone who died in the violence yeah. or you know, and the saddest thing about it was, as as a journalist, I was allowed to cross front lines all the time. So I could be, I could wake up in Jerusalem, in the, the Israeli um, side of Jerusalem, mm. I could, and I could go to Gaza for the day and yeah. spend the day in Gaza. But a, a Gazan could not leave and go to Israel, and an Israeli couldn't go to Gaza. And mm. and so, how do you solve? Um, or how do you stop the violence when two sides who basically live next door to each other don't understand each other? Mm. And then going into Iraq, I had this wonderful, uh, we call them fixers, but basically they're mm. journalists, local journalists who help you out. They they um, translate for you. They find um, interviewees for you. They get mm. you places. And his name was Saadi. And, and I got to talking to him about his background and he fought in the Iran-Iraq war in the mm. 1980s, which mm. was just a bloodbath. Mm. And, you know, he said he'd fought there, he'd fought in the first Gulf War against the Americans, lucky to survive that as well. And now this new war was coming, which he actually supported. He wanted Saddam Hussein out. Yeah. But then, you know, that lasted for years and the violence then kicked off within Iraq itself and people, Iraqis began killing Iraqis. And so it became part of that fabric and it, it was just horrific and, you know, he died this uh, this year, and, and he was quite young. He was only uh, in his early sixties. And I spoke to his son when he when he died, and he just said he he his heart gave out. He just you know it was just too much. He just mm. he just lived his whole life in war, literally. And he had this he had the the scars on his on his body. You know, he had this big gash in his head where he, a bit of shrapnel had hit him in the Iran Iraq War, and you know, he hoped that the bush. War would probably bring peace and stability instead mm. of brought chaos and murder. Mm. And so, yeah, I, I just don't. I'm a bit of a pessimist when, if you mm. ask me about the Middle East, I can't, I can't see any resolution to um, what's happening over there. Yeah, 
I mean, I'm, I'm a bit of a pessimist, full stop, I think. I mean, where we have the, you know, drums of war beating left, right and centre. I agree. I mean, I was in Iraq in 2018 as a civilian uh, supporting, you know, development efforts as a consultant. And, <laughs> it, yeah, it, the mind boggles, A, how little we mm. actually understood of the of the ecosystem that is Iraq, uh, in, you know, not just myself and my organisation, but also, you know, many of the, you know, much bigger, larger, stronger organizations like the UN or, uh, you know, World Bank and so on, how little we actually understood or still understand the actual local context, which, which yeah, the mind just mm. boggles. Um, so, so from there, you, you then spent some years in, in Japan and then what, you know, to, to maybe pivot towards the latest book, what, what then drove you, and, and I certainly, sorry, I just make a point, I'm certainly not dismissing your Japanese experience uh, at all because I'm sure that would be really, really interesting, but uh, just in the interest of time, um, what then brought uh, you to Afghanistan and, you know, how did this book uh, come about? Well, I got back from Japan and, you know, that had been an interesting time given, you know, the earthquake, the tsunami, the nuclear meltdowns, and it had been quite a busy yeah. five years yeah. in Japan. And I wanted to refocus my journalism and I'd done, I'd done a lot of investigative journalism in Japan into what led to the nuclear disaster there, mm. that it wasn't just... A natural disaster. It was actually man-made as well because of corruption, negligence, and so I was asked to to join um, this new investigative unit um, when I got back from Japan in uh, early 2014. Um, the ABC was committing a lot of money to investigative journalism, so I, I joined that unit. And you know, we we were doing stories on everything from you know the biggest environmental contamination in Queensland through to police. Uh, corruption, uh, mm. you know, criminal underworld um, gangs. And we had a team uh, on the Afghanistan war crime story, the allegations that were swirling around, but they sort of wanted some extra help. Basically, I was just a, another set of hands to help our team. And mm. and um, how it all began is, a, is a, a colleague had gotten hold of a bunch of documents from the Afghan Independent Human Rights Commission um, from the period of around 2010 through to 2012, 2013. And I got hold of these documents, they were mainly in Pashto and Dari. Um, I got them translated and I sort of compared dates and locations with what was publicly available about what the, where the Australians were and what they were doing. And look, to be honest, um, there wasn't a lot of you know publicly available information um, about specific operations, but... There was one um, that related to a village called Sarkoum, and I'd read about that in Chris Masters' very, you know, com uh, comprehensive book, No Front Line, that there'd been these two Afghans killed in Sarkoum. And anyway, the, the the documents we had from the Afghan Human Rights Commission suggested that these two deaths weren't of uh, insurgents or any Taliban, that these were civilians, and that one of them had been beaten to death, which, you know, um, sounded a bit strange to me. Um, and look, with our unit, we don't just publish unverified documents, even though they've come from an official human rights commission that's affiliated to the United Nations. It's, you know, it's, it's a very well-respected commission over there in Afghanistan. We sent, um, you know, um, Afghan journalists to the village. We didn't tell them what information we had. We just asked them to go and ask about certain incident that happened in 2012, give us some names, tell us what happened. And they did that. And they came back 
And again, they weren't prompted, they weren't given names, they weren't told how people were killed. And they came back with um, basically the same anecdotes um, as uh, were outlined in the Human Rights Commission investigation report. They came back with the same names. And so, you know, we, we thought, well, that's interesting. And we, we went to the Defence Force. And, of course, we knew the Brereton inquiry was underway. Um, and the Defence Force, you know, would not comment while that was underway. So we ran the story um, that these were allegations coming from Afghanistan that civilians had been killed. And one in particular, as I said, quite brutally. And after that um, went to air, I received an email from an anonymous person, but it was very clear from this person, well, they stated it, that they had been at that village in that operation. They were part of an SAS patrol. And so were that that in response, sorry, detailed, were that in response to the story that had come out, as in, as in the email came after that that's, story? That's right. Came, yeah, yeah. Okay, yep. yep. That's right. They, they read, this person had read my story online and, you know, with each online story, we embed our email addresses. Um, and so if you want to contact us mm. with any more tips or information, you can. And so this person had done that. And the information that this person provided was extremely detailed. And um, it went to some of the allegations that we didn't put in the story that we couldn't verify, but it matched them. So I knew immediately that we were dealing with a source who was part of that uh, that rotation through Afghanistan, the SOTG, um, that some, who knew the personality. So I, I wrote back to the source and um, they provided more information. They provided photos from that uh, rotation. And so a relationship developed and I never pushed very hard with the source. I didn't ask for their name immediately. I didn't ask for any details. I'd just write back with a couple of questions and the source would write back and say, yeah, well, I can tell you this. But the source was very upfront. If they didn't know something, they said, I don't know what's going on there. I didn't hear that or I didn't see that or I don't know that person. Mm. Um, and so then, you know, um, something weird happened. I, <laughs> You know, your worst nightmare when you've got a really interesting or informed source is all of a sudden email stopped. And that made me very concerned. And I reached out a few times, didn't hear anything. And I you know, thought, wow, I've blown it. I've obviously mm. maybe said something. or, But then all of a sudden, uh, an email come from a different email address and the source had simply forgotten. <laughs> it, was, it was him, obviously, his, his mm. login. And so um, it was something as similar as that. We reestablished contact and I thought, well, right, I've had a bit of a scare there. Maybe it's time to meet. And mm. so... I arranged to fly into state and meet the source. And, and that's the, the genesis of the book? Yeah, well, it was the genesis of the Four Corners story. So, mm, okay. you know, yeah, and, yeah. and the, I, I, yeah. I, I, I waited for the source and, look, you know, the source is quite happy for me to explain who that is now, and that was Braden Chapman. And Braden mm. Chapman, you know, was a signals intelligence operator who served on that rotation with Three Squadron SAS. Mm. Um, he'd gone out on dozens and dozens of missions, um, like a few of the guys that I'd eventually talked to, he'd come back from that, you know, that particular rotation uneasy about some of the stuff he'd seen and, mm. you know, and a little bit disturbed. Mm. Um, he, he'd done a, another rotation the following year with the, with the Americans, um, uh, at a Bagram airport. Anyway, he, 
then you know gone back to you know Perth and you know and eventually he he um, discharged. Anyway, he he obviously provided me with you know a load of photographs and loads of videos and uh, said that I could you know have a look through them, and do what I want with them, and and that's where the Killing Field Four Corners came. You know, I I went through each of those videos meticulously, frame by frame. I listened to every bit of dialogue. You know, there was a lot lot to get through and I think after the first week or so mm. it was one Friday evening and I'm in the office and that's where that particular video it springs up like every other video it starts with a patrol on a Black Hawk they land and it ends with you know do you want me to drop this you know what mm. starts mm. with C ends in mm. T three mm. times and then the killing of that Afghan in the field and uh, that was the genesis of the four corners and Braden Chapman agreed to go on camera fully identified and talk about what he'd seen as well and you know after that four corners it was wow I just got inundated from people who'd served overseas um, ex-SAS operators um, medics um, signals intelligence intelligence officers who'd served with SOTG and I suppose, you know, the, the, the wealth of material that came through after that, it meant that I kept reporting to the ABC, but, you know, it was suggested to me that, you know, maybe a book was a better way of putting it all down mm. and, you know, trying to explore what it all meant. Mm. One of the criticisms that I'm sure you've uh, uh, been already challenged on uh, is the, the inevitable question, you know, wh- why did you not wait to publish the book or the report given that the inquiry was already going on until we figure out what has actually uh, happened on the ground, you know, in a court of law, uh, potentially. Uh, Because I think that's one of the questions that many, certainly many that I've spoken to in the ADF have about both the report, uh, as in the Four Corners Killing Field report, as well as the book. Yeah, look, and look, people are entitled to that. But, you know, um, we're not called the fourth estate, the media, that is, for for no reason. You know, Mm -hmm. if... If we don't have journalists doing their jobs, then we don't have the Watergate scandal and the resignation of Nixon. If we don't have journalists doing their reports, we don't have the Fitzgerald inquiry in my home state of Queensland that led to the downfall of Bjorki Peterson and and the reform of a whole political and police system. Um, I believe that journalism can operate in tandem with official inquiries. And to be honest, without the Four Corners, the Brereton inquiry does not have that footage. It does not have um, access to, A, that footage, and then what comes out of that footage. And we know that, um, you know, that inquiry was helped greatly by that particular program and and other stories that we've done. And, um, yeah, look, the problem with justice is the wheels of justice turn very slowly. And I think if you take the media out of the equation, then I don't think we're going to achieve everything that should be achieved in service of justice. And so if my journalism is irresponsible, then I will pay. I will pay either through the defamation suits that will follow potentially if I've defamed someone. If I'm in contempt, then I will be charged. If um, I have stolen things, then I'm sure the AFP could kick down my front door. Now, none of those things have happened either with the Four Corners or the book because it was all done through the help of um, former regiment um, people, 
uh, members of SOTG, people who believe that this needs to come out and that it, 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 the media is one way of doing that. And um, yes, Brereton um, has done, what I think, a pretty meticulous, uh, complex and very good job. Um, however, the Brereton report is not the be-all and end-all. It does not finish the process. And as we've mm. seen, it's come out and said, right, uh, we think that there should be, I forget, was it there were 39 killings? Mm. Um, we recommend a certain number of cases. I think, yes, it was 36 matters be investigated by the AFP. Um, now, look, to be honest, that's going to take years. So mm. I don't think we can just pull down the shutters of journalism, go, well, let's wait and see what happens. Mm. Yeah. And, and and the other thing that strikes me as well is, uh, and again, I, I certainly don't intend to be combative because I, I've stated my position on all of this quite clearly, you know, through an article and, and in my podcast previously. One of my biggest concerns is that, and this is my personal concern, is I don't think we can ever fight a war without war crimes. Um, I don't think there has ever been a war without war crimes. Uh, that's the that's just the nature of war, uh, and, and and as we alluded to, you know, in the Middle East in particular, I mean, violence comes easily, and we become desensitized uh, to war. So this is more a disclaimer for my audience that I certainly don't mean to uh, uh, throw out those in the videos uh, under the bus. I, I, I want justice to take its course, and you know, for them to answer what they need to answer uh, too. One of the things that I that I also want to touch on is. Speaking about the environment, it's, it strikes me as though in the book, a lot of the characters in the book are part of the unit, but are not fully fledged uh, qualified operators. Did you get a chance to to speak to qualified operators and what were their thoughts on the general narrative uh, that the book uh, projects? And maybe why, why didn't you have more uh, operator voices uh, in the pages? Yeah, look, I, I spoke to a good half a dozen operators. You know, one of the main characters was Tom. Mm. Um, you know, he's um, he's throughout the book. Um, I talked to one of the operators who is accused of crimes, and I spent a bit of time with him, and I made sure that when I spoke and wrote about him that it wasn't just black and white. Like you mm. said, every war attracts or generates war crimes, and I found him a fascinating man, and, and I gave him... Um, plenty of space in the book. I've spoken to, mm. I suppose, Andrew Hasty was another operator I spoke to. I've And I spoke to a, at least three others for the book who'd served during that period, but who didn't want to be named. Um, so look, I did reach out to as many as I could. And as you'd appreciate, um, not everyone was a, a fan of what I was trying to do yeah. and what I was trying to get to the bottom of. So yes, you're right. Um, look, they, um, th there were... Uh, a good, at least I'd have to say six to seven operators who helped me out with the book, mm. both on the record and off the record. Um, obviously, you know, one of the other uh, main characters, Dusty Miller, was an SAS medic, uh, not beret qualified. Braden Chapman, a signals intelligence operator, not beret qualified. However, what I found interesting is that it was the support staff from SASR who had a particular view and who seemed to be the most burdened mm. by what they saw. Now, I'd like, you know, I, I'd, I'll quote Andrew Hasty here, and I think he answers the question. Now, this is not across SASR, but these are the sort of, this is 2012, 2013, when things didn't go very well. Mm. He said, you know, this is what I expected when he joined the SAS, were people who were exceptional soldiers 
who were able to think outside the box and were prepared to circumvent the chain of command like David Sterling did in the Western Desert during World War II in order to fulfill a mission. And then I get there and it feels more like a bikey gang. There is no freedom of all, uh, at all. You're treated like garbage if you don't conform. You know, so there was the mm. idea that the culture had been hijacked. And, and to me, it is interesting that the support staff were the ones who, you know, in, on a lot of occasions, blew the whistle. Mm. How do you explain that, I guess? I mean, maybe I'll ask you the question as opposed to me, me interpreting. How, how do you explain that it was them? Well, because I think they weren't part of the bikey gang culture that Andrew Hasty mentions, mm. and Hasty wasn't the only one who used that that phrase, bikey gang culture. I had a you know one, an intelligence officer who served over there who was very close with the SAS who used it. I had even even a you know a former general tell me that that's what he thought the culture had become, mm. and so these guys sat outside the culture because they're not beret qualified. They're not treated. Um, they're not treated like one of the one of the gang, if you like. And so from their perspective, they stood outside that culture and therefore um, were sort of more independent witnesses. I, I think it was it's very tough for mm. people who were operators to to blow the whistle. You know, I you know, I I spoke to one operator, you know, who's I asked him, you know, why didn't you blow the whistle? And he said, and I'll quote him, I was in fear of my life. They were talking about throwing members out of helicopters because they weren't towing the line. If they can shoot an innocent man in the back of the head just for the sake of killing someone, they can throw you out of a helicopter. Mm. And I, I turned to another SAS member who was with him that day and I said, oh, come on, you know, surely that's a, that's a little bit over the top. And this other SAS member said, no, nah, no. Nah. There was a few guys there who were unhinged, was his word. Now, the vast majority of SAS operators and, and support staff, any, any member of the SAS, I found uh, honourable, decent professional people of integrity. I've got no problem with that. The problem was, was that these few individuals, generally the patrol commander level, they were such, they, they were so corrupted. And um, I think that they were able to poison the culture, particularly on those couple of um, rotations that we talked about in 2012 and into 2013. I think that's when things went really off the rails. And but that's been well documented, not just by me, but by Brereton and by other journalists, um, Nick McKenzie, for example, and Chris Masters. Yeah, and I, and I, I echo a lot of what you're saying, and, and and particularly the notion that most SAS uh, people that I've ever met are nothing but noble and and inspirational, and some of my closest friends have uh, and still do serve uh, in that unit. So I can certainly echo that sentiment. You know, I, I was also I was in Afghanistan in 2010 into 2011, and I've worked uh, in support of SOTG myself. So I can also understand some of the other elements about not being part of the club. I certainly wasn't exposed to any of the less appealing sides of the unit because I was definitely an outsider. But I can certainly empathise with some of those uh, sentiments. My my concern again is that we focus on the few bad apples, and and again, in my experience and my, the way I see the world, uh, I find that that is almost uh, perhaps making the problem seem too little uh, because I, I, I'm, a, I'm a firm believer that we are a product of our environment and that there is a that there's a that there's a path that one gets to uh, you know it, it watching the video you know killing fields I, I, I don't you know I, I have no doubt that anyone in Australian society who thinks about such things deeply uh, will come to the conclusion that that will, what we saw in that video is you know morally unjustifiable 
However, just focusing on that individual soldier, I think, you know, misses something. Uh, I think we need to, as a society, explore how an Australian soldier came to think that that was okay, right? So, so I, I've heard it a thousand times. There are circumstances. Well, we need to understand what are the circumstances that have led him to act in a way that for him at that point in time, that seemed justifiable. Um, you know, it's not about the focus on the soldier per se to blame or punish him or cast him out and banish him. Uh, but I think we need to really invest time and effort to understand what has led him to become so desensitized to violence and, and, and war and death that pulling the trigger at that point in time seemed the appropriate action. And I think this is what we need to explore. I don't know how you feel about that. I mean, I, I, to what extent do you think your book accounts for the environment that our soldiers live and breathe, particularly our soldiers like the SAS. You know, do you think that the book actually touches on that sufficiently or, or, or how do you see it? Yeah, look, I think it does. I, I think the book uh, gets into culture. It gets into that desensitisation. It gets into what are the conditions that, that created uh, the mm. ability for that guy in that field to go, do you want me to drop this yeah. C yeah. three times? And, and, and not only that, you know, looking back at that footage, that guy, that guy is no threat. If he was a threat, he'd be dead. And if he was a threat, why did that soldier swivel around, take his eyes off him at least two times? It was, it was poor soldiering um, on top of being a war crime in the end. And look, I think the fact that the book gets into not just the killings, but you know, guns, radios, uh, icons being planted on the bodies after the killings, you know, this is something that is goes beyond a war crime. It's then mm. the covering up for war crime. It it talks about well, how did they think they could get away with this, and why were they getting away with it? Why was the culture that tight that no one could blow the whistle on them? You know, mm. and and look, you know, the other thing about it, you know, the book looks at um, the other issues here. This. I agree with you that the, we need to look at it on very broadly. But if you look at something like blooding that Brereton um, pulled up, you know, this is, you know, when your target compounds have been secured, you know, the the local nationals have been, you know, secured, their pucks, persons under control, you know, and then, you know, according to Brereton, the patrol commander would take the puck and the junior member of the patrol and the junior member of the patrol would then be directed to kill the person under control. You know, this is... Not what Australian soldiers stand for. Yes, war crimes happen in war. That that one thing flows from the other. But I think the book tries to understand and tries to paint a portrait of why this happens. Um, and again, um, if we take the Killing Field um, video that we saw, the flow-on effects, the strategic flow-on effects of that were profound because that the guy they killed in the field that day had a 14-year-old brother. His name was Jamshid, and his immediate reaction was to go out and try and join the Taliban. Now, the Taliban said, boy, you're too, you're too small, you're too young, come back. Well, he did. He went back a few years later, and he's now a commander in Aruzgan. Now, these acts have consequences. It's not just the taking of a life. Mm. It's the creation of these monsters. Mm. And, you know, I, I think one of the, the most poignant things I've heard um, – and it came out of the tapes that I got, um, that I listened to. And it's, I've been out in the green for a long, hard slog of a day, and they're out in a plane. This is, I, don't, I think it was four, uh, four Blackhawks worth of 
SAS patrols. And they're sitting around waiting for the Blackhawks to come and pick them up. And one, one SAS operator turns to another and just says, we're definitely not trying to win the war anymore. Now, that comment probably explains more about what went wrong than any strategic report written by a general back at the headquarters. That, well, that's, that, that's my issue, company. and I guess that's my issue. That, that right there that you're saying, because, I mean, I keep saying, and, and this podcast I've addressed this point so many times, I, I, I often say that we never fought the war we thought we fought. And, and I think that's the, mm. you know, and, and, and from the soldier's perspective, you know, we, we don't account what impact on the soldier's mental state, you know, the loss of purpose or vision had on them. We don't, you know, we don't talk about that. And that, that, that frustrates me a little bit because it, what, what we hear right now in the media is, you know, hang out these few bad apples. Uh, we need to punish them because then the rest of us can sit here in, in our, on our moral high horse uh, professing our civility. What we don't do is we don't look at those who actually send us to war. Under what conditions did they send us to war? What mission did they give us? What rotational uh, setup did we have? Uh, you know what? You know how many hours of sleep did our soldiers have? We know the impact sleep alone has on our moral compass. We know what what impact the loss of somebody close to you has on your moral compass. We know it, by decades of research what impact war has and the surrounding of war has on somebody's moral compass. But we don't talk about that, and that that's that that to me scares me as though okay, we'll have a few soldiers. They'll go and get tried in, in a court of law. You know, they'll go and serve whatever, you know, if they're found guilty, and we just crack on. Um, it, it, to me, it, it feels as though we're, we're missing a key piece of this puzzle, and that is that, you know, what, what I try to, I guess, argue in, in some of my discussions is that if, if we understand that in war, shit will happen, if we, if we accept yeah. that as, a, as, a, as an axiom, as a truth, as a self-evident truth that we know that in war, bad shit will happen. Uh, soldiers will do bad things. That then behoves us to, you know, go upstream and do, do everything possible to prevent the need or the want to send our soldiers to war, despite all of our Geneva Conventions, mm-hmm. despite, despite of use in Bello, despite of, you know, our beloved just war theory. Time and time again, we know that the longer you are in war, the more exposed you are to war, the more desensitized you are to war, and therefore, the more likely it is that someone will do something that just doesn't doesn't gel well with our moral compass. But but we do that yeah, from the well, comfort I, of you, you know, like without that. understanding that context. Yeah, sorry, go on. No, I was just going to say, I, I think that's a fair point, and I, I, I made the point in the book and that it's the guys that pull the triggers who always... They're the ones yeah. that we're, they're always going to cop it. Mm. And I, I wrote this. I'll read it to you. We elected successive governments who sent these soldiers back and back and back to Afghanistan. We pinned medals on them and sent them back again. The mm. war broke them and we sent them back again. Those governments, as always, escaped the blame for conflicts like Afghanistan, mm. for the civilian casualties, for the shattered lives of, of Afghans and Australians alike. Mm. The Brereton Inquiry's terms of reference could never extend to the role or responsibility of these successive governments in contributing to the conditions that turned some soldiers into murderers. Not a single former defence minister who was in office during the Afghanistan conflict stuck their head up in Mm. the wake of the Brereton Report's release. Mm. Um, And I talk about we in the media must also wear our share of the blame. Sections of the media glorified the special forces 
holding them up to be invulnerable superheroes they could never be. We wrote and broadcast puff pieces about valour and victory, about mm. selfless and sacrifice. Yeah. Um, we extolled the virtues of a war that had long ago lost its strategic and moral imperative. I, I think those points, of, uh, they, they are very valid and I think they have to be raised. Um, Where are you quoting that from? Sorry, that's beautiful. That, is that in the book? That's in my book. That's oh, wow. Okay. From Rogue I- Forces. Yeah, no, no, I, I love that. I love that. I've obviously read the book, but it, that it, and and I've mm. tagged dozens of pages, uh, and I apologise that that one didn't uh, I didn't recognise it immediately. But that I, I couldn't agree more with that. Yeah, sorry, I didn't mean yeah. to interrupt you. Go I on. think I think I just think no, no, that's fine. I, I do agree. The governments governments exploited our soldiers. I believe in Afghanistan mm-hmm. they were very they were very keen to turn them into superheroes. Mm. pin medals on them but when let's just say the brown stuff hits the fan mm-hmm. which it has with you know the allegations of war crimes in Brereton, where's the government mm-hmm. um where is the where is the um former defense minister sticking his hand up saying you know what i think under my leadership as defense minister or or as prime minister we we should have looked harder at, at how we'd lost our way in afghanistan yeah. And that's the problem. And again, the media as well. I think some of the greatest damage um, in the media um, done to our veterans isn't mm-hmm. done by investigative journalism. It's done by that sort of mainstream media that, that puffs things up and turns yeah. everyone into a hero and you're a hero and you can't question anything about mm. these soldiers. Mm. And do you know what the, who that does a disservice to the most? Are those soldiers who've had the courage to come back to this country and say, you know what? I saw things that were unacceptable and I'm now going to call them out. Mm. Now, that those soldiers get no support from that media because that media doesn't want to hear anything bad. Mm. Um, I've been called I've been called the most vile things under the sun and you know, I've got a thick skin, I've you know, sticks and stones, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but every time I hear that about me, I think, hang on, what about those soldiers, the operators, signals intelligence guys, medics? you know, support staff generally who had the courage to speak out and to say, hey, this isn't what Australia represents and these things that happen shouldn't have happened. Mm. Yeah, and that's the, that's our clickbait culture, I guess. And that's the, I mean, I'll ask you as a journalist, is our fourth estate broken? Because especially because of that very point you just made, that we we chase headlines, we chase uh, sound bites, uh, we need to release before time. And I'm not here talking about investigative journalism. I'm talking about our mainstream day-to-day journalism that, that creates the narratives that propagate in our social discourse. Yeah, I, I think most of it is broken. I think most, like most of it, I don't even bother to read anymore. It's mm. um, it's offensive to your to your intellect, really. Um, mm. And and you know, to be honest, um, you know, chasing ratings, uh, chasing clicks mm. is not always the healthiest way to gauge what good journalism is, as as you appreciate. And um, you know, I think you throw social media in there and. Wow, what a goes to the tail. Yeah. Well, it finds you <laughs> in your right. po- well, it, yeah, and it finds you in your pocket. You don't even have to go looking for it. It beeps at you and it tells you, "Hey, re- look at this, read this." Um, and again, that's something that's I, right. I've already addressed, uh, and will continue, particularly next year, to to address that very point: the dangers of uh, um, uh, of social media. But but I really do. I just want to come to that point because I, I just want to highlight something, right? And that is, I think, that the, this last piece we talked about the upstream. Uh, uh, you know, causes that ultimately lead to what we know will at some point happen. Um, that we don't address that. I think that's a, that's a, that's an angle that 
and again, I, I blame myself here, right? I, I, I feel guilty for not having picked up and highlighted that quote from your book because that should be, in my view, that should be the, uh, the, the headline of the book, right? And then the discussion is mm. this is the consequences of our failure up the top here. This is what leads to it uh, because what I think has happened to your book uh, and correct me if I'm wrong here. This is just my own. I've obviously read it, uh, and and I actually, uh, it's a horrible way to say it. I, I enjoyed it. Not in not in the sadistic sense, but I enjoyed it because of the uh, illuminating nature it has and the powerful impact that it that I hope uh, it, it it will continue to have. Because these are raw stories that need to be discussed. We need to have these discussions. But what I'm seeing is that there are two narratives, right? There is a narrative of your book that. People don't want to even touch it. And, you know, we've seen the social media posts of people burning your book and, and you know, hiding it in, <laughs> I mean, it's just crazy, hiding it yeah. in bookstores and all that sort of stuff. Um, and then there's the other side of things, which, you know, almost kind of embraces the book as a, well, here's our proof that, you know, Australian soldiers are murderous and that, you know, we shouldn't be going to any of these wars and we should, you know, the ADF is is bad, et cetera. And, and oftentimes a lot of those people haven't read the book either, uh, which I find fascinating that mm. there's that there are competing narratives of and these are the ones that are being captured in media and social media, but a lot of those haven't actually read the book, which 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 be yeah. which it's just beyond me. Uh, and I find that people who have actually read the book, those that I've had a chance to speak to who've read the book, um, have had a far more nuanced approach to this and and a far more reserved response as opposed to a mere emotional response. Have you what what have you found, right. found so far? Well, I've, I can tell you I've been contacted by former and serving SASR members of all stripe, you know, from operators to support staff, who've said, I've read your book, it hurt to read that book, but I thought the book was fair. And I had one who was an operator actually say to me, I actually thought it was sympathetic. And, and that's the thing that bothers me, you know, with people burning books, uh, you know, one guy shot up the cover of it and everyone's hiding mm. in book, bookstores, is... I've got no problem with you burning my book uh, or shooting it up if you've read it. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. please read it, and then then if you still think it's uh, the most skewed, uh, biased piece of uh, reportage you've ever come across, then feel free to do what you want with it. But the, but the people I I trust most and the people whose opinions count most are the people who've either served on the SOTG rotations or with SASR and and the the people, look, I've had a couple go, look, I thought it was a bit unfair, but the vast majority have been very supportive and been, um, look again, sort of say, look, this is what the regiment, it's part of what the regiment needs. Um, the regiment, you know, is, it is seriously something worth celebrating within the ADF and within Australian society more generally. But like any institution, it lost its way there for a little while. There's no doubt about that. You know, like what sort of organisation, you know, had a cock of the year award in which they could humiliate some member of their own team and the officers and the generals all cheered along? You know, that to me represents a pretty obvious breakdown that things are heading in the wrong direction, that something that could have been a bit humorous and a bit of a piss take has turned into something toxic, nasty, and something like something you'd see in Mean Girls, and so mm. I, I've, I've, um, again, I've had, I'm pretty happy with the response I've had to the book um, from people who count. 
Um, obviously, a lot of others have thought it pretty funny to go hide it in bookshops and burn yeah. it and whatever. Um, but to me, that's a very juvenile response, and that's more reflective on them than anything I've done. Hmm. No, I, I couldn't agree more. I think it's yeah, it's it's it, it is yeah, juvenile is, is the right term I think for it. It really is because um, it, it it removes you out of the discussion straight away. It just makes you look like a tool. Uh, but more, to, but to that point <laughs> that you took, I mean, it really does. I mean, because I don't think mm-hmm. you deserve a seat at the table if that's the kind of because all you're doing is you're fueling these narratives of the extreme where you're mm. one of the problems I think it is, that we have is that. This is so closely tied, tied to identity, um, you know. And and when you're attacking people's identity, and it could be people in 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 SAS, could be people in uniform more broadly. But the moment and what this book does is it creates a perception of targeting the identity of whether the people in the unit uh, or the ADF more broadly. And it's very easy for people to respond non-rationally. Uh, and I think that's you know what we're mm, what we're also right. seeing. Uh, but the example you bring up about the you know the cock of the year award, I mean, I, I again, I I don't know about that. I've never been to the unit. I've never served you know anything like that. But I, I know from people uh, in the unit that I'm sure, and much like other things in the in the ADF, that has a, a positive genesis of kind of creating a more egalitarian uh, ch- and you know a chain of command, chopping down, uh, uh, you know, having have you know poking fun at the leadership, which in in a jovial sense is is oftentimes a good. Uh, part of a unit. I, I was part of a unit that very much embraced those types of things where, you know, soldiers were okay to have a dig at the officers and so on. Uh, it never went to that point, uh, but there was a positive aspect. And, and I think what you're highlighting there is that there is this that there is this sliding scale downwards if we don't have checks and balances in place, um, you know, that ultimately will lead to behaviours uh, that we don't want, we don't, we don't condone. Mm. My, my question think, to you... I think yeah, that, sorry, that but, use of the Sorry, no, 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 you go. 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 No, 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 please. No, no, no. Go, go. I didn't mean to jump in. Go on. I, I was just going to say, I think you're right. I think in all organisations, you can have a bit of a piss take and, and you know, people in authority have got to wear it. You know, that's just part of, you know, these these little rituals. But I think with the cock of the year, it became actually a weapon um, mm. that, you know, the NCOs would use. Mm. And in one case, it's in the book, you know, a junior officer was basically humiliated because... Um, he'd actually called them out while in Afghanistan. He wasn't happy with some of the standards and he was uh, upset by the drinking. And so, you know, it was used as a tool of revenge. And I think there's a, the, the gulf between, you know, doing that and just having a bit of fun at the end of the year is had, had moved too far. And I, I think uh, that was why the Cock of the Year Award had come to symbolise some of the things that had gone wrong. Mm. That makes absolute sense to me. Um, one of the other things that I, that I guess I, I just want to pick up on, and and I, I'm kind of ticking these things off because I really want to be fair to those who I've spoken to in defence who've highlighted uh, what they thought were their concerns, and I thought I'd want to use this opportunity speaking to you as a member of defence uh, to ask you some of these questions because it, it is it is uh, a, a touchy subject and one that I I want us to have a conversation uh, about. And of course, I'm I'm wearing some risk here as well because I'm trying to straddle. Uh, a rather sensitive subject, uh, whilst I'm inside the uniform, you know, what, what inside ADF, and I and I wear wear the uniform. Um, what do you? How do you feel? What do you think is the is the legacy of your book? I think that well, I hope the legacy of the book is that we can sort of learn the lessons of how the most elite of the elite can slip, and and I think. There are a number of reasons for that. And I think 
the other thing I'd like people to take out of it is I'm not just blaming the trigger pullers, the guys who are accused of these crimes. Like you've highlighted yourself, um, where was their patrol leadership? Where was their squadron leadership? Where was the regimental leadership? Where's the ADF leadership? Where's the political leadership? And where is the media responsibility here? And I think it's a great case study to show that if you just let a few toxic individuals behave in the way they behaved in Afghanistan, that can have massive repercussions for the entire organisation. Um, and, and also, I think there was conditions created in the regiment whereby if you tried to raise these issues or you even hinted that something was wrong, then you were the one that was punished. And that was the theme that keeps coming at me. So, you know, I think the book, it represents the good people who are truly at the heart and the ethos of the SAS. And that's the vast majority of them. Um, and so, if people read the book, once they close it, they finish that final page, I think if they're reasonable and rational minded people, they'll think this is a great organisation, but it lost its way and the time has come to reform it. And we know already that those reforms are underway and that there are good people in the organisation who are trying to do the right thing. And, and I think, you know, the SAS um, will again be something that we should be extremely proud of in this country. Mm. And, and many within the organisation or, or kind of special forces more broadly are, are, are kind of throwing a bit of uh, uh, mud your way about uh, the alleged impunity that you were able to, you know, publish things that are unproven still uh, in the court of law uh, and that because of that you've, you know, you've destroyed, you know, countless lives, et cetera. And, and you know, I've seen some of these this criticism uh, on, on your social media profiles how do you feel about that or what would you say to those people? I'd say that everything in that book is extremely well sourced with multiple sources and uh, most, uh, if not all, I'd have to double check, of the incidents that are recounted in that book have at least uh, one, if not more, eyewitnesses who were there. Um, uh, in fact, you know, I, I put that, you know, and the other thing is we discount the Afghan side of things too. So they are definite eyewitnesses to every incident. Um, I've spent, uh, nearly two years investigating each of those incidents. Um, and also I think we need to remember again, and as we sort of talked about this a bit earlier, that the media does not have to get anything to a criminal standard of proof where a jury will convict. That is the role of prosecutors, the director of public prosecutions, our investigation services. The media has a has a role in this country to shine a bit of a light on some of the darkest corners that we have, and that's what this book does. Now, and the other thing I would say too, whilst if you've served in SASR, you probably have a fair idea who most of these characters are, the ones who've chosen not to be named. But I have also deliberately not named anyone uh, who is accused or alleged to have committed a war crime in the book. Um, they have been given pseudonyms, whether it's Soldier A, B, C. Um, I, I realise, again, that people within the regiment will know who they are. However, I, again, have sourced it as well as I can, and I am confident in everything I've reported. I've not received one defamation writ out of this. I have not, the publisher has not received a single 
letter saying anything is inaccurate in the book. People are free to bring that up with me or the publisher if they believe it is. And I can say with great honesty, uh, which you alluded to at the beginning of uh, your introduction to, for the, today's podcast, is that um, the, the stuff in this book has actually created investigations that are still ongoing, um, credible investigations that... Um, if there wasn't a certain standard of proof, the AFP or the Office of Special Investigator or Brereton or whoever it is would not have embarked upon those investigations. So I, I stand by everything in that book. That, that, that pleases me to no end to hear that you haven't had formal uh, complaints or defamations and so on about the book because that, again, speaks to the, the, the you know, existence of these competing narratives, on, on, on rather extreme narratives that, in my view, actually missed the point. Uh, you know they're they're, mm. they're almost background noise, uh, but I do have to press you on one yeah. point, and that's uh, and that that's certainly not in the book. But um, your no- November platoon with Heston Russell, who who, who I, I know Heston. I mean, I, I can't say we're we're mates or close mates or anything like that, but I certainly um, uh, know him, uh, and he's uh, he's of course been quite public, uh, you know, particularly over the last well few weeks, uh, that refutes some of the allegations uh, against. Uh, the report that uh, I think it was yourself and, and a few other uh, journalists made about uh, his platoon, November platoon, uh, alleged assassination of a prisoner uh, before they went on to uh, a chopper. Uh, now, of course, Media Watch just recently, you know, was quite critical of you as well um, because the the backbone of the story is is here, you know, it's not eyewitness, it's, you know, here witness uh, evidence. Uh, from a US, uh, 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 not not wasn't pilot, it was a loadmaster, I think, uh, on the chopper. Uh, how do you feel about that whole story? What's happened there? Look, Media Watch made some mistakes, which we'll be asking for a correction on um, uh, next year. Um, specifically, you know, one of the main um, issues that I will bring up with Media Watch and Heston Russell is that um, if people want to read that story, um, can someone point out in the story where I accuse November platoon of killing the prisoner? That that just that is something that Heston Russell outed himself with after the story went to air, and um, that to me really? was interesting in itself. And okay. that's right. At no point, the only reference to November platoon in that story was a member of two commando Oscar platoon saying that the Drug Enforcement Administration, the DEA, that was running those counter narcotics operations. After one or two missions, didn't want to didn't want to work, or after a while, didn't want to work with November Platoon, which was something I had confirmed in the United States. That's the only reference. Now Heston Russell came out in the Daily Telegraph after that and said, "Oh, he's talking about my platoon and me and whatever." Um, now the ABC is currently working through a complaint that Heston Russell's lodged with the ABC, and that's fair enough. And and one thing I found a bit disappointing is that. Heston Russell lodged that complaint and then, you know, then went on 2GB and went all over social media with it without giving the ABC an opportunity to respond to that complaint. Now, we will respond to that complaint and we stand by the story. Um, there were multiple sources for that story, uh, uh, you know, including the, um, the US Marine. Uh, he was a door gunner at the time. Um, uh, yeah. Sorry, yeah. other sources. Yeah, all other sources in the United States and in Australia. Now, um, the other misnomer here is that that is not being investigated, that incident. Um, that was a little bit of misinformation spread around by I don't know whom that um, the defence is not investigating. Well, of course, defence is not investigating. Defence has no role in investigating alleged incidents in Afghanistan. But let me just say, I, I, can, I can say with 
100% certainty that that incident is being investigated. Um, other than that, um, I think Heston Russell deserves, from the ABC's point of view, uh, to be have his criticism, uh, his complaint rather, answered properly. And so that's still being worked through. But So I won't go into any more detail no, than that yeah, other than yeah. to say that we stand by the story. Okay. No, I appreciate you saying that, and, and again, I feel somewhat sheepish that I've uh, that uh, you know I haven't looked at that in sufficient detail because I think the, again the narrative surrounding it is that is you know the the claim was that it was an amendment platoon, which again speaks to I think the bigger problem. And I and I've prepared for this interview as much as one could I thought, um, mm. and you know I failed to prepare uh, no, sufficiently. No, okay. And and, and no, but I'm sorry. I'm just trying. The point. I'm trying. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not trying to throw myself under the bus here. I'm just trying to highlight the point that mm. is unsurprising. Therefore, that you know, most in the general public have a misunderstanding of what what's actually going out there. What's actually what is actually you know credible That's and right. what's Look, information. Easy, what's it's, yeah. It's yeah. very easy. It's very easy to muddy the waters here. And um, the other thing that I found interesting is that that story went to air in October 2020. Uh, I believe the ABC got the complaint from Heston Russell in November this year, so about a year after the story went to air. Um, it's a very long time to elapse um, before a complaint um, came in. It's normally normally people who feel they've been hard done by, wronged or defamed or whatever, um, lodge a complaint much sooner than that. Um, mm. Now, I, I will note that Heston Russell has declared that he's, he's now operating a political party and running for public office. So, so you know... Um, I don't know. I don't know what that all means, but um, I did find the um, the timing of the complaint rather curious. But that's something for Heston Russell to explain, perhaps. I mean, I've read a re response to that. Uh, you know, why he delayed, and it was on, on the ABC website. Um, uh, so mm -hmm. the, the correspondence thing. So I mean, and again, it's not my place to cast doubt on Hesto. Uh, I wish him all the best. I think uh, I think you're you know the ABC and you, as you highlighted, is doing the right thing in responding to all these things because I think it shedding light on all of these things, as I'm hoping to do here in this discussion, is what we need to do. And we need to give people the time and space to have dialogue about these things, lest we find ourselves in a situation where we don't actually even know what we're talking about, uh, where these, the, the <laughs> story right. has come off the rails so much that we're not even arguing about the point that's important. Uh, and again, you know, I, mm. I, I, I highlight your attempts now and in the past and in the book to build a bridge with, you know, the special forces community uh, which unfortunately is not necessarily what's you know what I'm hearing in this social media space because you you are rightly highlighting that the issues th these are merely the consequences of issues that have that that we have that are you know far more upstream um, and yeah, what's the con that's right yeah so, sorry sorry I, I don't mean to I think we have a slight delay so I think interrupted you again sorry go on no 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 I was just uh, I was just saying fair point yeah and and also conscious of our time and, and I don't want to keep you much longer but while I have you I, I, I must uh, exhaust my opportunity so looking at I guess our institution of defense in your view based on your understanding from you know as an investigative journalist as somebody who's been around you know Canberra around now war for many years conflict defense how do we fix it firstly what do you what is our biggest problem from your view and then how do we fix it how do we improve the institution the noble institution the defense is well look that's a that's a good question you know i i for the book wanted to sit down with the chief of defense angus campbell and the chief of army rick burr and talk through these sorts of issues and you know after six weeks uh well, six weeks after i you know put in my formal request to speak to them and to you know maybe 
visit some facilities and, you know, I got told that they would politely decline any of my requests, uh, all of my requests. So, you know, I found that disappointing and maybe that hints also at a little bit of why there are problems. There seems to be, I suppose, a little bit of inertia amongst the defence leadership on, on some of these issues. And, and certainly, I know the greatest anger um, surrounding Brereton, while most people think the Brereton Inquiry did a good job, and I'm one of them, um, and this isn't my criticism, but obviously the main criticism that um, people had of the Brereton report was that no one up the chain of command wore any responsibility other than, you know, perhaps alluding to the fact that there were too many rotations and people, you know, uh, were sent back and back and back when maybe they shouldn't have been. So I, I think um, one of the um, interesting responses from defence possibly should have been, well, maybe all of those people in those very senior positions maybe should have put their hand up and said, hey, look, in hindsight, um, maybe we didn't um, get this totally right. And I, I think that lack of accountability is something that's annoyed a lot of people, particularly within the regiment and particularly within special forces more broadly. And so, you know, how to fix ADF, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> that's uh that would be a very thick book to write that one. Um, and all I would say is I think um, a lot of people down the chain feel let down by those higher up it. No, I, I, I will echo that. And again, I'm cautious of what I'm saying here. I mean, I also have to acknowledge that I'm a serving member um, and my podcast is defence approved, but I've also, and I've said my thanks in, in, in a recent episode uh, to the ADF and Army in particular for not uh, putting a leash on what I can and cannot say and cannot uh, and whom I can and cannot talk. So perhaps that might be an indication of defence realising that these are important conversations and we need to have them. Uh, and maybe while we can't publicly acknowledge it, um, at least the the discussion the discussions I'm having in my circle of of of, of peers, uh, we're we're definitely talking about these points. Uh, we're definitely trying to unpack not just Afghanistan but more broadly our relationship to conflict, our relationship to war, our government's relationship to the ADF, uh, our government's ability to send our soldiers forth with effectively impunity. Uh, all of these things, I think, are really, really important, and we need to discuss these uh, because if we don't, we find ourselves uh, you know, in situations like the one uh, you've uh, so uh, skillfully highlighted. Uh, on that note, Mark, I, I do want to thank you because this was not a... Well, firstly, for giving me the time, uh, but also for giving me the trust to come on. I, I, I certainly, regardless of how this interview goes, I know I will get criticism uh, from you know members of my own communities that I didn't push you hard enough on certain things, or that I let you slide here or there, and uh, you know that I should have asked you this and uh, etc. But I, I, I feel like I've read the book. I respect what the book is trying to do. I respect what the intent behind the book is. Whilst I also appreciate how certain members of the defence community are taking the book, uh, I think we as a society need to read the book and discuss its true intent as opposed to, and I'll stress again, as opposed to feeling like all we're doing is hanging out a few bad apples out to dry so that the rest of us in our 
highly civilized and ethics, ethical society can sit back and wash our hands and uh, say, hey, we've done our civil duty uh, by throwing those, you know, a few bad apples uh, into jail. It's much bigger than that. It's a much bigger war is a much bigger topic uh, than, uh, you know, such a simple uh, narrative and a, such a such a simple supposed solution. Uh, so I really do want to thank you for, for, for being brave to push it out there for being brave to, you know, face the criticism. Uh, and just before we wrap up, I do want to ask you, you've, you, you've made the point that, you know, you've got tough skin, but how are you managing with all of the heat that you are uh, getting for the book and the report? Because I suspect you've had a lot. <laughs> oh, yeah, look, it's the, the, the social media abuse, it's sort of the messages are in the thousands, um, you know, um, you never like to see videos of your book being burnt or hidden in bookshops or shot at or whatever it is. But I think the thing, I don't feel so much, you know, sorry for myself or down on my, you know, any, anything personal like that. I feel more disappointed that people would re- respond like that. You know, we're a very lucky country. And I, and I think maybe that luck and that this, this wonderful place that we live in has made us a little bit lazy intellectually and a bit apathetic. And therefore, when something challenges your worldview, rather than trying to absorb it or understand it, we just, in the case of the book, we burn it. Um, and look, obviously, you know, uh, recently, you know, we've had a guy charged for threatening um, my family, um, you know, leaving a message, a voicemail message uh, on my phone, threatening to cut my wife's throat. I just sort of think that sort of stuff uh, disappoints uh, me to, the, to from the perspective that I thought as a nation we were bigger than that, and if we don't agree with ideas, then uh, we don't agree with them. But at least we've read them or we've talked about them or we've debated them. And uh, unfortunately, um, the thing that gets me down the most is that some people uh, have a very loud megaphone these days called social media and they will broadcast their ignorance and stupidity to all and sundry um, when perhaps maybe they should just sit down and read a book. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a wonderful note to end on, not just your book, but, hey, any book. Uh, I think that's a any that's, book. That's, exactly. yeah, that's time well spent uh, rather than uh, browsing uh, social media. Mark, thank you so much. I really appreciate you giving me so much of your time and uh, having a chat about this all-too-important topic. No, thanks, Maz. It's been good. I appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Voices of War. You can access all episodes on www.thevoicesofwar.com or by subscribing wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And while you're there, please give us a review as we'd love to hear what you think. If you'd like to recommend a guest for the show, you can reach me on info at thevoicesofwar.com. <laughs>